0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe.
1: Coming up, we're talking Christmas traditions and where they all started. It's never been a purely religious festival, it's always been about keeping happy at the gloomiest time of year in the far northern hemisphere. We'll pick out some lesser-known festive customs to explain. The Yule Log's a German custom. It's just a variant on the universal idea of having more warmth and light in your home at midwinter. And we'll discover how Christmas might develop into the future. Now, this
0: week, the English Heritage Podcast is getting into the festive spirit by giving the gift of Christmas knowledge – You see, it occurred to us that many people celebrate the festive season every year by following certain traditions. But have you ever wondered, while decking your hall with holly, why those traditions exist? Joining us to unwrap England's weird and wonderful Christmas customs is Professor Ronald Hutton, who's an English Heritage Trustee and an academic at the University of Bristol. So, Professor, first of all... We're here to talk about some of the more unusual traditions that have sprung up around Christmas over time, but to what extent is Christmas a religious festival?
1: It's never been a purely religious festival. It's always been about keeping happy at the gloomiest time of year in the far northern hemisphere, while honouring your deities. So it's always been both. Is that as a result of the pagan influence? No, it's a result simply of human nature. Uh, If you want to go on the religious side completely, you end up with the problem of a Saint Gregory Nazianzen, who remarked the Christmas has been ruined because it's now all about uh, overeating, quarrelling with the family and uh, general self-indulgence instead of being about the birth of Jesus Christ. This was in the year 384. As suggested, it never had purely religious overtones. It's always had overtones of enjoyment. And the option in the ancient world was to go to a temple if you had a special need. Otherwise, you left it to the priests to honour the deities on your behalf, in much the same way as there's a take it or leave it attitude to going to church at the present day. Going to church is only compulsory in times of religious warfare or schism, especially at the time of the Protestant versus Catholic Reformation and Counter-Reformation. And that's when people become counted when they turn up at church. Otherwise, it's a lot more free and easy. I see.
0: So let's look at some of the key figures in the Christmas story. Obviously, we've got the traditional Christmas story, Jesus, the wise men, Mary and Joseph. I'd like to get to the bottom of this Father Christmas Saint Nick Santa Claus. How does that
1: become part of the Christmas tradition? Father Christmas and Santa Claus are two different figures that get merged in the late 19th century. Father Christmas is English and he's born in 1616 when he's invented by the great playwright and poet Ben Jonson, friend of Shakespeare, to personify Christmas at a time when the Christmas festival was under attack by Puritans as being Roman Catholic and Pagan. He personified the fun of the Christmas festival, but he had nothing to do with children and never gave them presents. And he remained the English spirit of Christmas right through until the 19th century, when Santa Claus arrived from America. Santa Claus is originally a Christian saint, St. Nicholas, who is the patron saint of children, and his feast is the 6th of December when good children got presents, traditionally. In 1821, a New York academic and poet called Clement Clarke Moore reinvents St. Nicholas, known in Dutch as Santa Claus, Santa Claus, and it was the Dutch who settled New York. As a spirit of the northern midwinter in a sleigh drawn by reindeer, a fur-trimmed cloak and coat with a hood, and uh, coming down chimneys to give children presents. And this complete makeover seized the imagination of the New York public and spread across America. He arrives in England in the 1880s and blends with Father Christmas and hey presto.
0: When was it in, in New York that Santa Claus became born, so to speak?
1: 1821.
0: So you've got about 200 years between the two ideas merging. That's right. Right.
1: That's very interesting. And why Santa Claus? What does that mean? It's uh, just the Dutch for Saint Nick. Instead of shortening Nicholas to uh, Nick, the Dutch shorten it to Claus. Santa Claus.
0: That's one of the things I really wanted to clear up in this interview, I must admit. So Saint Nicholas, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, two ideas mixed together. That's it. And when was he
1: canonised, this Saint Nick? Way back. uh, He's a bishop in what's now Turkey. He seems a historical character and he's one of the early Christian saints.
0: Who invented the tradition of the stocking then? Why does Father
1: Christmas or Santa Claus, Santa Claus, fill a stocking? And why a stocking? Where do we get this from? The idea of putting presents in a stocking for children at midwinter is uh, a medieval German and French custom and it stays across the channel for most of history. But in 1854, an English writer produces a short story for children in which the Christmas stocking features, and it becomes so popular that people actually adopt the practice. And when Santa Claus arrives from America in the 1880s and after, he adopts the stocking when he turns up here.
0: And was it always,
1: it would hang above the mantelpiece or...? Hangs from the mantelpiece or more often at the foot of the bed. When I was young, if you were really lucky, you got a pillowcase instead of a stocking because it holds more.
0: I think me and my brother um, decided that that was the best way to get more stuff as well. Let's move on to some other Christmas icons as well. Uh, The Christmas tree. Now, as I understand it, this is a German tradition. It's been handed down through the royal family, the British royal family, and has then been popularised
1: as a result of that. Is, is that correct? You're absolutely right. You're way ahead of me here. The tradition of bringing in greenery to decorate the home and decorate holy places, temples and churches, is prehistoric. It's part of making it a jolly feast with symbols of life and hope at midwinter. But the idea of using an evergreen tree specifically appears in Germany and it appears at Strasbourg in the Rhineland in 1610 when a big evergreen covered in candles was put up in the cathedral and this then spreads through Germany so it becomes a general German custom in the 18th century and then Germans fleeing from Napoleon bring it to England and it remains a German custom here until as you've suggested that prime German Prince Albert has one for the royal family at Christmas in the 1840s and it then gets taken up by the English in general. But even so, in 1850, Charles Dickens, that great expert in Christmas, could refer to the tree dismissively as this new German toy.
0: <laughs> so the idea is that it's, as you've mentioned, um, a life-giving object that is sitting in, in a space which is potentially pretty dark before the advent of electricity. And you've got this sort of symbol of of life just around the corner. Once we get past St. Lucy's Day, the, the longest, the shortest day, then life is and light come
1: back again. That's absolutely right. The calendar changes in 1751, and we lose ten days because we'd slipped further and further out of the true wheel of the year with the inaccuracies of the old julian calendar a pope introduced the gregorian calendar in the 1580s but the english not liking popes didn't adopt it until a couple of hundred years later so st lucy's day is the shortest day until the calendar change and then it goes back to where it should be to st thomas's day st lucy's day is the 13th of december st thomas's is the 21st right And is the shortest day the 21st, is that correct? That's where it should be, uh, meteorologically, It's where it was 2,000 years ago. But then, as I say, the calendar kept slipping. So it was one year out in the early Middle Ages, and it was 12 days out by uh, the 1750s. So when we have the winter solstice at Stonehenge, that will be on the 21st. That's right. The reason why it's St Thomas's Day in the early Christian calendar is he was the doubting disciple, so he gets the shortest day. Let's move on to
0: some other things. We talked about the uh, stockings, the Christmas tree. We talked about how the Christmas tree has become an English and British tradition. I presume then that as a result of it becoming an English tradition, perhaps it found its way to the the States as well.
1: Absolutely right. Uh, And it's now found worldwide as Christmas globalises under American influence. So you can find a Christmas tree in a Far Eastern airport quite easily.
0: Let's talk about uh, giving of gifts. Was it ever a gesture driven by religious veneration that, you know, that, that Christ was this gift to the world? Or was there always a
1: hint of it being a bit of a commercial enterprise, this giving of gifts? It begins as a blessing custom. And it doesn't happen at Christmas. It happens at New Year. So you can bring in the New Year with the good feelings and delight of being given a gift to wish you well for the year. And that's post A, to make you lucky and B, to make you enter the new year in the best frame of mind. And that's found among the ancient Romans, and it goes on at new year for thousands of years. It only shifts to Christmas in the 19th century because of the arrival of Santa Claus there and the new emphasis on the family as the centre of a Victorian Christmas. And just for the record, the last English person to give gifts at New Year and refused to do so at Christmas as Queen Victoria. And the custom died with her at the opening of the 20th century.
0: Going back to the early start of the custom, though, you mentioned the ancient Romans there. Would these have been the Romans who would have known of Jesus Christ, or was this
1: pre-Jesus Christ? It's very much BC. It's pre-Christian. And it happens at the Calendai, which is the Roman name for New Year, which is on the 1st of January, just where it is now.
0: So again, we've got this sort of tradition which uh, existed before Christ and then has become merged into other traditions later on, a bit like Father Christmas, Santa Claus, sort of all blending together. It's very interesting. Christmas cards then, um, they're given, just like gifts would be. And when does this
1: start becoming a thing? It starts precisely in 1846, when a commercial operator decides to manufacture custom-made cards to send best wishes to friends at Christmas. And uh, it spread so fast that it turned into an enormous industry, which it still is.
0: The Postal Service is well established by this point. The Penny
1: Post, yes. It's in action a few years earlier and makes this possible.
0: Wow. So I suppose wherever there's a new invention, there's
1: a way of sort of commercialising Christmas in a way. Where there's a new invention, there's a chance of commercialising anything. But it has to plug into this prehistoric sense of the need to keep people's spirits up at a particularly deadening time of year. And to approach the new and coming year uh, feeling lucky and happy.
0: Let's move on to some other things as well. Um, (laughs) Kissing
1: under the mistletoe. Um, I think there have been pop songs about this. Where does that come from? It comes from London in the late 18th century. The custom is about as old as uh, the United States of America is. uh, Older than the French Revolution, but not much. It's really a custom of servants in big London households. Now mistletoe was really quite rare as a Christmas decoration till the 18th century because it's quite rare anyway compared with holly and ivy which are the usual traditional Christmas decorations before the tree, before commercial decorations. But mistletoe became more commercially available by the 18th century and it had a cachet because Most people didn't have it, and it was hung in a ball, which is the way it often hangs on trees, from a ceiling. And servants uh, developed the custom spontaneously of snogging underneath it, and their masters and mistresses noticed very sportingly, instead of forbidding them, they copied them. (laughs) And we've had the custom ever since. No connection with the Druids, no connection with ancient fertility rites. We can pay tribute to the inventiveness of uh, English servants and the good nature of English employers. I wonder how they got that idea though, these servants? Stealing a kiss? uh... Yeah, somebody did it and somebody thought it was a great idea, but their names are lost forever.
0: Oh, that's such a shame, because that could have been a real, uh, another story that we tell each other at Christmas time, you know. How expensive is mistletoe compared to some of these other foliages, like holly and and how rare? I mean, you talked about how rare it is, but where does it
1: grow? It grows mostly on uh, orchard trees, especially apple trees. And the widespread cultivation of commercial orchards in the 18th century produced a boom in mistletoe. It doesn't grow on much else. It can be found on a whole range of trees, but uh, very seldom. It's relatively cheap now, relative to a lot of commercial Christmas decorations. But then nobody seems to buy holly and ivy very much these days. What you tend to get is holly wreaths to put in the front door. Mm. Where do they come from? Again, it's just uh, an outgrowth of the custom of decorating your house with holly and ivy. Okay, It's not more of an American thing? No. uh, America does it, and that's possibly why we still do it now. It's originally a Europe-wide idea to decorate with holly and ivy. Holly and ivy are simply the most common and easily found evergreens available across northern Europe in midwinter. Makes sense, because everything else has obviously
0: died back, being uh, deciduous. Let's move on to some other icons that exist in the Christmas uh, tradition then. Um, Yule logs. Now, i probably got this wrong, but uh, my family, I think, treats it as a, a piece of chocolate that which looks like a log, but I don't think that's quite right, is it?
1: The Yule Log's a German custom. It's just a variant on the universal idea of having more warmth and light in your home at midwinter at the feast to cheer up. But it is specifically a German custom to have an enormous log or a bigger log, which in the biggest households is drawn in on a cart or a, a sledge with song and festivity. And that's supposed to burn in the hearth you know, with other things around it all through the Christmas festival. It reaches England by the 17th century when the poet Robert Herrick mentions it. And it's found thereafter. Here in the West Country, we have the ashen faggot instead, which is a bundle of uh, ash twigs bound with bark, which has put in the, the fire instead. Still found at a few places, mostly pubs in Somerset and Dorset.
0: So would a group of people go out into the woods and fell a tree and
1: cut it up into bits? And Yes, it's, that, that could be it. it. It's more likely that they will fell a tree anyway, and they will keep the thickest part of it as the Yule log and then uh, have that brought out ceremoniously and brought into the house for Christmas. How big are we talking then? It's uh, all sizes to suit your household. So a uh, an aristocratic household is likely to have a yule log a few feet thick and uh, an ordinary household will have one about a foot thick. And once it's put on the fireplace, do people gather round and...? Yes, bringing it in is an occasion. There'll be singing and raising of toasts and then a party around it. It often launches the, the Christmas feast.
0: But that tradition's fallen away quite a lot now, hasn't it? Because we, because of electricity, I suppose, and central heating. Yes, that's absolutely right. It's a bit of a shame, that, because the fire is something that I think is quite primal, isn't it? Um, everyone in a darkened room gathering around a, a single light.
1: Yes, the Closest equivalent at present is bringing in the Christmas turkey as the great centrepiece of the dinner. We, we don't really have much else that equates the Yule Log.
0: No, because you get more togetherness, I think, from looking at a, a singular object in, in a dark space. Let's move on to some other things that people might be less familiar with. Mumma's plays. Now, I don't know if this is something that really strikes a chord with most modern people.
1: What is a mummers' play? It'll strike a chord with people interested in folklore and people who live in particular communities, mostly in the West Country and the South West Midlands. It's uh, a folk play with a standard repertoire and you get a mock combat between two mock heroes, often Saint or King George and a Turkey knight, uh, a Turkish knight. And then one of them is killed and revived by a quack doctor. It's knock-about comedy. It's slapstick, and it's extremely versatile. And it's really an early 19th century craze. It appears in the Georgian period, the 18th century, and it's spread by printed texts, chapbooks. And it really catches the imagination of the Southern and Western English. It peaks round about the middle of the 19th century and then it declines as people get fed up with it. What's the purpose of this play exactly? Is it a sort of morality tale? Or? No, not really. It's the opposite. It's an immorality tale. It's immoral fun. The great thing about it is it has a certain format to it with lines that everybody can shout. But it's really versatile because you can fit all sorts of local and political satire into the play by introducing extra characters, by lampooning an unpopular local person or a political figure as one of the characters, or celebrating a popular one as a hero. So it's got nothing much to do with the birth of Christ? It's got nothing whatsoever to do with the birth of Christ, and it's got nothing whatsoever to do with pagan mysteries of the winter solstice. It just happens rather nicely with its theme of death and resurrection to fit into the theme of the death and resurrection of the year.
0: And the fact that you can shout out lines and there's a bit of contemporary comment in the play sounds a little bit like what we have these days at the local theatre.
1: Well, the replacement for the mummers' Play as you get up market the 19th century goes on is the panto. The pantomime is what the mummers' Play morphs into in towns and for more um, prosperous working people. And then that's another way that you can keep people entertained in the middle of winter, get people together. But a panto is mostly a laid-on entertainment, either by professional companies or by a group gathered from a local school or club, whereas the mummers' play is traditionally the poorer folk the poorer men, especially young men, in a community going round the pubs and the streets to entertain everybody else and be given the reward in food or money which they can use for their families for Christmas. That is if they don't drink it all up in the nearest pub which some of them are entitled to do. So when did that die off then? It goes into rapid decline in the late 19th century because of the pantomime, because of the music hall and also, again, because people are getting used to it. There's only so many permutations you can make of a mummer's play before you start feeling something else is needed.
0: Are there still small groups who go around performing mummer's plays?
1: More than there have been for many years. Uh, Mumming has returned as a traditional entertainment and again, it's just absolutely wonderful entertainment for a street, so everyone knows that the Marshfield Mummers will be out on Boxing Day, say, and uh, the whole village and a lot of friends will gather around to watch them. Or alternatively, it's a great place for a pub space because it only needs a team of anything from four to half a dozen people. And you need a a space about 10 feet across in the centre of the pub floor, and it's ideal for that sort of uh, gathering. It's boozy, uproarious, knockabout fun, and the scripting is minimal. Lots of opportunity for uh, improvisation, lots of opportunity for spontaneous one-liners, lots of opportunity for audience involvement. But why is it called a Mama's Play? That's simply a a, a very old, it's a medieval name for people going around uh, in disguise acting things.
0: Moving on from sort of plays and people being outside to singing outside, we've got a couple of things to talk about there. One is we're sailing. The other one is obviously caroling. But
1: are they kind of related? No. They come from totally different origins – Caroling comes from Christianity and from the Franciscans, as said, and it's originally a religious act of devotion. Wassailing is originally part fun and partly a deadly serious religious rite of blessing. Wassailing is the Southern English way of wishing your farmland good luck and prosperity for the coming year. It's always enacted at New Year or on the two or three weeks after New Year. And what you do is you sing to whatever makes your farm or your agricultural industry work. In other words, if you're a beekeeper, you sing to your beehives. If you're a livestock herder, you sing to your sheep and cattle in their stables and buyers. If you're a grain grower, you sing to your fields. And if you're an orchard grower, you sing to your orchard trees. And it's died out completely except for the singing to orchard trees mostly apple trees. And that's undergone a big revival recently in the West Country it really, and South Wales. It really does uh, fill that gap just after New Year. Everyone's feeling a bit down and provides an extra celebration. So what do people do then? Do, do farmers invite people to come and to their orchards? And It can be quite a commercial thing, people paying a certain amount per head for the ceremony and the hot Drink they get, often hot cider, at the ceremony. Uh, many times more often it's uh, an act of hospitality by a farmer or by a local community to invite people in to enjoy it and get the community together. And they're often set rhymes. Uh, the, the most common one in the West is Old apple tree, we wassail thee. That thou mayst burden, that thou mayst blow, And that thou mayst bear apples and no, hats full, caps full, three bushel barrels full Hurrah <laughs> That's fantastic. What sails from the Anglo Saxon We Su Hall it's in Beowulf It just means your health be healthy. Cheers
0: it's interesting that a lot of these traditions that we're talking about seem to sort of hark back to the midwinter festivals that would have taken place before Christianity really spread.
1: That's absolutely right. The only thing to be careful of is to see that what we've got now is often the latest, the modern forms of them. So there always have been plays around at midwinter. The mummers' play happened to be the eighteenth, nineteenth century favourite version of that. There always have been songs at midwinter. The Christmas carol developed as the endearing form of that, and so it goes on.
0: Yeah, I think that's always been the case, isn't it? That the Yule tide and Christmas time they were separate but then they sort of became in- intermingled
1: yes christmas is literally the feast of the nativity of jesus christ and yule just happens to be the scandinavian the norse and danish and swedish name for the midwinter festival
0: let's uh, talk about some other characters and uh, we've got the lord of
1: misrule and the king of the bean now who are they The Lord of Misrule is the central character for festival misbehaviour at midwinter. The King of the Bean is just a a one-day offshoot from the Lord of Misrule, elected specifically on Twelfth Night from uh, drawing a lot, a bean baked into a special cake, uh, at the end of the Christmas holiday. Lord of Misrule kicks into an old truth about midwinter, which is that in many ways, as I've emphasised it's a depressing time, Dark, relatively cold or really cold, uh, filthy with deep mud, dampened and grey, lifeless. On the other hand, because of those things, you're safe mother. human beings with muddy roads, full rivers, rough seas, short daylight, the risk of hypothermia. Armies are in winter quarters and robbers are not going to hang around the roads. So you can lighten up, you can relax, you can let your hair down. And that's why midwinter is the great time for social role reversal, for giving the servants a chance to boss around the employers and the masters for giving the junior clergy a tra- chance to take over the big churches and giving the choir boy a chance to be the bishop for that period. And the Lord of Misrule is just the most common name for uh, a servant or a youngster who's appointed to run the household during the midwinter feast and devise fun and games for everybody else.
0: It's so a Lord of Mischief, basically.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's an enduring part of the Christmas feast. Uh, We read out our silly jokes from the crackers. That's exactly in that uh, particular tradition when we have silly party games together like charades. And it sounds like it relates back to The Mama's Plays as well. The Mama's Play is a lot more recent than The Lord of Misrule, although a couple of hundred years old. But it fits right into that groove. Winter humour, I guess you could call it. Pre-Christmas,
0: The Romans celebrated Saturnalia around the winter solstice.
1: What is that? What can you tell us about it? The Romans celebrated midwinter with a twin peak festival. The first peak was Saturnalia, which lasted from the 17th to the 23rd of December. So it's kind of pre-solstice and the beginning of the winter solstice. And that's uh, a festival of fun and games and silliness. Saturn was the god of the birth of the world, of the time of the alleged time, the Golden Age, when there was no war and no taxes, and people lived simply and loved each other. And they try and do that at Saturnalia. And then on the 23rd, everything goes quiet in ancient Rome, and people wait to see what's happening. Because you've entered the solstice, nowadays the winter solstice is an astronomical event with a precise time like 7.48 on the 21st of uh, December. It varies year to year. But before the last century, when you have people in both northern and southern hemispheres speaking to each other and scientific instruments, you can't calculate an exact time for the solstice, the moment when the sun hits the tropic of Capricorn and then begins to turn. So what you see instead is thing utterly different and quite riveting. Assuming you've got visibility in the sky, you will see that the sun, which rises and sets at different times in the horizon through the year, slows down in December and June. And at sunset on the 20th of December the 20th of June, to the naked eye, it appears to stop moving. That's what a solstice means, the sun stands still. And it starts to move again on the 25th of December. And the 24th of June, that's Solon Victor's sun return to the Romans. And the Romans would then wait a few days to see if there wasn't going to be a cot death to see that the sun was actually getting stronger and was established. And after a week, they would hold a party, a birthday party for it, the calendai, the new year. Right. And that's why we've chosen Christmas as the 25th of December. Yes. The early Christians, as far as we can see, put the nativity at this incredibly symbolic time of the year. They didn't do so until around 300 years after Christ's death. We first find Christmas there in 354. But it's such a good idea, so it's stuck there ever since. But it does mean that we nowadays have a Twin Peak festival at midwinter like the Romans, but we have Christmas and New Year instead of Saturnalia and New Year. That's really interesting.
0: So looking back at all these ideas and traditions, they all relate to one another. They've all sort of evolved from one another and all sort of been borrowed from one another as
1: well. Yeah, there are really four themes for a midwinter festival in northern latitudes, i.e. where you do have a serious winter. Number one is keeping cheerful. Number two is charity. From the beginning, there's been helping those who can't keep cheerful do so. Number three is blessing for the coming year. And number four is misrule. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's an
0: interesting sort of intermingling of, of traditions that gives us what we have today.
1: Where do you think Christmas traditions can go from here? What's happened in the past and is likely to happen again is that every few hundred years the exact nature of the customs gets an overhaul. And so what we've got now is basically the Victorian Christmas, the Victorian middle class Christmas that spread to most of the population in the early 20th century and has been globalised recently. Before that, the last makeover was in the Tudor and Stuart period, and then it had a makeover in the late Middle Ages. So the most likely thing is that once The globe has got used to the Victorian middle-class Christmas. They'll give it another century and then scrap a lot of the customs and produce others that fit into a space-age idea of keeping merry, giving charity, enjoying misrule and blessing.
0: But the Western world has become quite secular, obviously. So is there still much life
1: for Christmas going into the next few hundred years? Certainly there is, because it's not just Christmas. There are an abundance of cultures that have midwinter festivals, Hanukkah, Diwali, or others. So what you're going to get is, for the next century or so, a pretty well-globalised secular kind of Christmas with options for a variety of major faiths to engage in their own midwinter religious rites to accompany that. And I can see that in Western society of those faith choices, Christianity will remain the most familiar and common, but there'll be a lot more choice for people, just as there is in practically every other branch of life.
0: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. We're back next week with a series of Christmas carols recorded at Bolsover Castle, and a bit of history about them as well. So make sure you join us and don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share and give us a rating. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, this is Josie Long here to tell you about Speaking with Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage presented by me. With the help of researchers and local community members, I'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about. Subscribe to Speaking With Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot and get every episode delivered to your podcast
1: feed for free. I can't wait for you to hear this show.